Young women have been growing up with an indoctrination of what womanhood is and what it should be. They've been taught everything that is in direct opposition to the Word of God. Young women who want to be different from the world are rare, but they are real. On this Rare But Real podcast, Audrey Brogy will often be joined by her daughter, Grace Anna, and her daughters-in-law, Maureen, Kesset, and Marilyn, who desire to be discerning in a day when everything seems to go against God's design. Join them in the journey of becoming rare but real. It takes courage and conviction. And now, Audrey Brogy. With prayer. Father, I thank you so much for your kindness to us, for your graciousness in allowing us to have another day of life, to gather together in this auditorium, and to gather with those who may be watching and live streaming today or who will be doing that later. Father, we're so grateful for your kindness and the way you show it in so many different ways. I thank you, too, for the Monday night group and and just what you're doing um, as they meet together to study what we are studying here today in this auditorium. Father, I know we were reminded last week, or maybe some of us taught for the, we heard it for the first time, that um, wisdom is calling that the Lady of Wisdom is calling us, as is the Lady of Folly, and we must choose who, to whom we are going to listen and what we're going to follow. Father, I pray for our time today. I pray that you would be in our midst. I pray that you would guide every word that is said. I pray for the small groups that will meet after this message. And I pray that you would um, use that time to encourage each of them as they look at the truths of your word and as they learn even more than what I will be sharing in this message this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, y'all, wisdom calls. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out her seven pillars. She has prepared her food. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her maidens. She calls from the tops of the heights of the city. Whoever is naive, let him turn in here. To him who lacks understanding, she says, Come, eat of my food and drink of the wine I have mixed. Then, the the last part of Proverbs 9, we see the lady of folly. Verse 13, the woman of folly is boisterous. She is naive and knows nothing. She sits at the doorway of her house on a seat by the high places of the city, calling to those who pass by, who are making their paths straight. Whoever is naive, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks understanding, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant, but he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are the depths of Sheol. And she doesn't even want to tell tell them what will happen to them. But the woman of wisdom earlier in verse 6 says, forsake your folly and live and proceed in the way of understanding. Because what we're seeing here is that we all have foolishness. We all, our natural tendency is to go the way of folly. And God is calling each of us to forsake the foolishness, forsake the folly and live and proceed in the way of understanding. Now, the woman of wisdom and the woman of folly call out to the same people. We learned this last time. We've learned that some 
Some are scoffers. That's in the middle portion of Proverbs 9. Some are scoffers and they will always choose the way of folly and they will laugh at, they will mock, they will scorn God's way. They will make fun of people who are making their paths straight. But yet there are some out there who are wise and just the fact that they want to learn, that they want to receive instruction proves that they are wise. And then as they listen to that instruction, the scripture says they will be wiser still. Now, the older women in the church are supposed to be like the woman of wisdom in Proverbs 9. That's what she's supposed to be like. She's supposed to be prepared. She's supposed to have, have, have had years of walking with the Lord. So she comes to the place where she's reached the older stage of life that she has something to pass down to the younger generation. She's not caught off guard. The older women of the church, if they've walked with the Lord, are supposed to be industrious. She's not, shouldn't be a time waster. She shouldn't be just whiling away her days. She should be calling to the naive. She should be making herself available to the younger women who are coming up behind her to give them the truth, to tell them what they need to know, to forsake their folly and live. She's supposed to be giving wisdom. And even if a woman is older and she's come to Christ later in life, as she continues to grow and as she continues to walk with the Lord, as she continues to learn God's word, she still has wisdom to pass on to the next generation. Even so much as to say, look, I made so many mistakes. But this is what I've learned since then. And there's still a, a, a plethora of advice and wise that, wisdom that she can give to the next generation. And the thing is, why should women be this way, the older women in the church? Because God says, I mean, he said it, that they have the responsibility to teach and train the young women according to the ways of God. We know that. Any of you who've been here for any length of time knows what Titus chapter 2, verses 3 to 5 says about the role of women in the church, older and younger. But when the older women in the church are spiritually strong, when they are wise... When they model godliness in their behavior and in the way they dress, the way they present themselves, they become great role models for the young women, both by example and by their teaching. But sadly, we've had a vacuum in the church, both of godliness among the older generation of women and a willingness or an availability to train the younger women. We've also had somewhat of a vacuum over the years of young women wanting to glean from the older generation because of that mentality sometimes that we know better. We are wiser than the older generation. But we need to change that. We need to be wisdom, women of wisdom so that we actually carry out and model what the Scripture says. So what we do have today is either a generation of saved but foolish older women or a generation of saved women who claim maturity, but they're abandoning the discipleship of the younger women the way God wants it done. Instead, they are taking on the roles God has called our men to do. And by the way, they're doing it badly, very badly. And as a result, we have an onslaught of foolishness in the evangelical church among its women. And I don't think we realize really the magnitude of the problem. We've just been women who've just followed after whatever the culture 
tells us to do and then whatever the quote-unquote Christian culture tells us to do. We've copied the culture in its definition of womanhood and manhood. And now there are books written by supposedly Christian women who are attacking God's roles in the church that he's established. And they're, they're coming out with it in the guise of that they're just so wise and they know. In fact, I'll, I will probably give you a list of those books later so you'll know what I'm talking about. The, role, um, the roles of men and women have become interchangeable. And we don't even know what is truly masculine or feminine anymore. We don't understand what is wholesome, what is modest, what is discreet, and what is chaste. We don't even know what those words mean anymore. And if we do think we know what they mean, they think they're, we think they're awful. We scoff at them. Every woman here today in this room, every woman who listens to this message at some point in your life has the potential to be a wise or a foolish woman in every single area of her life. Now, for our purpose today, purposes today, we're going to look at the foolishness as it concerns the way we present ourselves, especially in the way we dress. And one of the reasons we in the church don't say a whole lot about this is because we probably don't really want God involved in it because it's kind of personal. We like to just express ourselves the way we want to express ourselves. We have this foolish way of thinking that God really doesn't understand. Now, you know, I'm on Twitter, and I follow good people, people that I think are good. And in the last few days, it's interesting because leading up to this message that I'm going to be presenting today, there's been a Twitter storm when a pastor encouraged women not to post photos of themselves in inappropriate ways. I read it. I read his tweet. It was fine. There's nothing wrong with it. But oh my, the scoffing he received and is still receiving. Not just random unbelievers out there, because we expect that, but believers whom I thought I respected. It's just been jaw-dropping to me. And women who make a claim to godliness, make a claim to godliness, also scoffing at it. Calling him dude. And other things like that. Think about it. With the clothes we wear, the pictures we choose to post, do we consult God's word concerning these kinds of things? Do we even want to know what God's word says about these kinds of things? Now, with these questions floating around in your mind, I want to look at the clothes God chose for Adam and Eve. And I want you to follow along as I read from Genesis chapter 2. Don't let your mind wander. Even if you've heard this read many times, some of you, you have heard it read or you've studied it many times. Others of you, it's brand new. But in Genesis 2, verse 15, the scripture says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it, And keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle, to all the birds of the sky, to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not 
found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Y'all, you know what just crossed my mind as I was reading this? That now this is considered hate speech. Just to read this passage from the book of Genesis. But let's stop there for a moment. In this passage, what we see is God's done, God has done some great things. He's made the garden. He's commanded the man. He's given man his job. He's made the woman. He's brought the woman to the man. Then he performed the first marriage between a man and a woman. Adam and Eve on their wedding day had everything that they needed. They didn't have to register for stuff. They had everything, a food, a home, a beautiful garden, lots of pets, and a closet full of clothes. No, and they didn't have a closet full of clothes. That's one thing they didn't have. Can you imagine not having any clothes? I mean, because, I don't know, that's pretty important to me. But it was missing, no clothes. Of course, they never had to worry about what they were going to wear. So, so Adam and Eve were naked, and they, they didn't have any clothes, but there was something else they didn't have, and that something else was shame. In the perfect world that God had made, in the Garden of Eden, there were no clothes and, and there was no shame. The man and his wife were both naked. They were not ashamed. And that's the way it was supposed to be. But then something happened in chapter 3. Y'all know what happened. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, as God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. To the, the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, we, God has said you shall not eat from it nor touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. So for the first time in their lives, they experienced shame and guilt. They were self-conscious about needing, about being naked. And what did they do? They're trying to cover up their nakedness. That's what they did. First thing, immediately. Before this, everything was great. They weren't worried about covering themselves. Before this, they had access and intimacy with God. And now there was this awful shame and they knew it. Now, the human body, we all know it's not a shameful thing. Sexual intimacy is not a shameful thing. It's wonderful in marriage. To this day, when men and women, young and old, engage in nakedness and sexual intimacy outside of marriage, initially there is shame. I mean, there is. Initially, there is guilt, and there should be. But our culture is fast-moving, wanting to remove all the shame associated with immorality. I mean, think about it. One of the slogans today is, don't shame me. You know, don't shame, or they're shaming this person, they're shaming that person. In fact, (laughs) so they not only want to remove the shame, but they want to celebrate all of this stuff outside of 
a, a man and a woman in marriage. But even though our culture's doing that initially, people still feel it. You can't remove the law of God that has been written on people's hearts. They still know. They just end up proceeding in the way of foolishness, and then their consciences become seared till they don't feel it anymore. And that's not a good place to be because it shows how far away from God we are. But see, in this area of sexual intimacy and sinning against your own body, that's what 1 Corinthians 6 teaches, that it's a sin against yourself and that no other sin affects us the way sexual sin does. But in God's definition of marriage, a husband and wife knowing each other in every way, including in this area, is sacred, it's holy. That's what God says. Because, and God also says it's a reflection of Christ and his church. But when sin entered the world, everything changed. Adam and Eve were experiencing the shame, this guilt, because they had disobeyed God and they're trying to cover themselves. Now notice the part of the body that they tried to cover. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Loin coverings. So picture Tarzan, if anybody thinks about Tarzan anymore. And what is cloth barely covered, and you've got it. A loincloth barely covers. But they didn't consult God. You don't see them saying, oh, we've sinned against God. God, please help us. No, they didn't ask God what they should, how they should cover themselves now that they're in all this shame. They just came up with their own solution, their own way of dressing, and it didn't solve the problem. But they weren't done. They tried something else. Verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the, you know, fig leaves, the loin covering wasn't working for them, so then they're just trying to hide in the garden. Maybe, you know, they're among the trees, but they're hiding at this point because they're trying to hide from God. But God saw them. And, of course, that always reminds me, every time this passage of Scripture reminds me of Psalm 139, and I know a lot of you have memorized Psalm 139, where can I go from your presence, your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I send to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you're there. Say, well, in an Adam and Eve's case, if we try to hide among the trees, you're there. God saw them. And just like he saw Adam and Eve while they were hiding from him, he sees you and me. He sees, what, he sees you when you think no one does. He sees your heart, your motives for wearing what you wear, for how you present yourself, all the things that you do in your behavior. He sees all of those things, and he notices those things. But here in this passage, if you notice, Adam and Eve seem to be more concerned about their nakedness than the fact that their relationship with God had changed. Verse 8 suggests that they used to walk with God in the cool of the day, but now they're hiding from him. And that's what happens with disobedience, sin in any realm. It always drives us away from God, or that's the temptation to run and hide from God. They had disobeyed God, and in their disobedience, they didn't appear to be concerned that they no longer had fellowship with God. They were only interested in hiding their sin. It's like a list of do's and don'ts. But God cared about the relationship. Their nakedness was just a symptom of something terribly wrong in their hearts. And y'all, when we look across the landscape of our culture and we see all the nakedness that's just in our faces constantly by both men and women, it should show us how far away people are from God. 
And even among Christian people, it just shows, it's revealing something about where they are in their walk with the Lord. So think about it. What we wear and how we present ourselves is an indication. It's one of those indications of what our relationship with the Lord is like. It's an indication of what's going on in the heart. And sometimes it's just an indication that someone's a baby Christian. They just came to Christ and they don't know. They haven't been taught. But as soon as they come in contact with what the Word of God says, hey, things get cleaned up in their lives, not because they're trying to earn their way to God or or they're trying to get God's approval, because suddenly they understand really in the deepest parts of their hearts the sacrifice that Christ made in their behalf. And then their hearts are so filled with love, they just want to obey Him because the Scripture says, if you love me, you will obey me. So if you're in love with Jesus Christ and He shows you things in your life that are not pleasing to Him, you want to run to change it it's like the psalmist who says i want to run the way of your commands it's not like man i can't believe god's word says that i don't want to do that no it's like your heart is like whoa i can't believe i didn't know that before god please help me in this area of my life so our thoughts our hearts what we're about is all revealed in so many different ways how we dress how we speak how we act our behavior how we present ourselves it's just an indicator Of course, in Genesis 3, verse 9, the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? They're not seeking God. Adam and Eve aren't looking for him, but he is seeking them. He's the one reaching out to them. And then Adam said, verse 10, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And again, look at what he's saying. This is the first thing he brings up. He brings up his nakedness. Not like, oh God, I'm, I'm, I'm so far away from you. No, he said, I'm naked. I was naked. Verse 11, and God said, who, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? So in dealing with Adam and Eve's sin, he asks questions. Where are you? That's the first one. The second one, who told you that you were naked? Not why are you wearing fig leaves or why are you hiding? And the third question is, have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Now, God already knows the answer to these questions, but he wants Adam to own it. So in dealing with them, that's what he's That's what he's doing. He's primarily concerned about the broken relationship with him, how far away they are, rather than just their nakedness and their inappropriate clothing choice. God's not ignoring the nakedness, but he knows that when the heart changes, the dress will change. And we need to remember this when we look out again and we see all these women in their nakedness. What we are really seeing is their separation from God. What we're really seeing is a heart that's hiding from the Lord. One of three things is going on. Number one, they don't know God. They're just lost. And they're just following after the culture. They're just dressing the way lost people dress. Or they do know God, but they're baby Christians. They need time to grow in Christ, and they don't know really what God says in this area. Or they know God and know what his word teaches, but they don't care. They come up with their own standards. They just say, well, God didn't really say that, and I can do what I want. 
And of course, that just reveals that they've wandered away from the Lord. So in the next verses, Adam blames the woman, the woman blames the serpent, and then God issues the curse on all three. So in verse 20, now the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. So God has dealt with the spiritual issues in verses 13 to 19. Adam responds to in faith in verse 20, and now God deals with the clothing issue. He hasn't gotten away from it. Verse 21, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. See the difference here? Adam and Eve sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths, only covering that area. (laughs) But God made garments. I mean, this is significant, y'all. He made garments, the kind of garments that covered their bodies from the top of the chest to, to the knees. That's what the Hebrew word for garment means. Fig leaves weren't enough. They needed garments. Now, we're going to look at a lot of passages. In fact, we're going to look at actually four passages of Scripture from the Old Testament to learn a few things about women and clothing. There are many more, but these are the ones we're briefly looking at today. And I want you to know this issue is all over the Bible. So the first thing we're going to look at is Rebecca's wisdom. That's the first point on your outline. Rebecca's wisdom. And her story is just a little brief section of scripture. It's in Genesis 24, verses 63 to 67. And so much has happened in Genesis between Genesis chapter 3 that we just stopped at and chapter 24. But here we have Abraham's servant who has just returned with a bride for Isaac. Verse 63, Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening, and he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, camels were coming. Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel. She said to the servant, who is that man walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, he is my master. Then she took her veil and covered herself. Now, what, 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 what you're seeing here is Rebecca is about to marry Isaac. So what would it matter if she just went ahead and got off that camel and flaunted herself as she's walking towards him? Showed him her body before the wedding ceremony? No. Her sense of wisdom and modesty caused her to cover herself. They would have a lifetime before them seeing each other's bodies. Verse 66, the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent, and he took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. Thus Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Now the second point on your outline is Tamar's folly. And this, her story is found in Genesis 38, verses 11 to 16. So you see Rebecca's wisdom, and now, woman of wisdom, and now we're seeing the folly in, in this uh, Genesis 38. So again, let me put this in its context. You can read the, the whole story later. But Tamar was married to Judah's oldest son, Er, or Ur. Ur died, and according to Leverite law, his brother Onan was to marry her. Well, Onan died too. Then Judah told Tamar to remain a widow until his third son, Shelah, grew up 
and then she could marry him. Of course, Judah never intended to give his youngest son as a husband to Tamar because he feared he was going to die as well. Well, Sheila did grow up, and Tamar knew about it. Verse 13, it was told to Tamar, Behold, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she removed her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in the the gateway of Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Sheila had grown up, and she had not been given to him as a wife. So you understand what's happening here. Tamar is like a picture of a woman scorned. And notice that her dress changes. She was dressed like a widow in widow's garments. Now she takes off the respectable widow's garments and she takes on the look of a prostitute. All in the way she presented herself. All that way. And this veil here is different from, the, from Rebecca's veil. Both wore veils. I mean, some women can wear the exact same thing. But one has a look of seduction, and the other has a look of wisdom. You know, so they both cover themselves. Again, Rebecca, the look of a pure virgin. And then the other, Tamar, the look of a prostitute. And the men knew the difference. Verse 15, when Judah saw her, of course, he doesn't know it's his daughter-in-law. He thought she was a harlot. For she had covered her face. She had done what harlots do. And that's what he thought. Tamar wanted Judah to think she was a harlot. So she looked the part because she wanted to trick him. She was angry about what had happened. And she knew how to do it. And Judah falls right into her snare. Verse 16. So he turned aside to her by the road and said, Here now, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What will you give me that you may come into me? She disguised herself so well that Judah did not recognize her. And think about it. Think about the look of so many women and girls today. I mean, think about girls for a second. You know, they look so innocent. And then they put on all this hard makeup and a brazen look about them. And they don't look like a little girl anymore. And all of us as women can do the same thing. We can take on the look of what we want to portray. And listen, some of our girls in their naivete are taking on inappropriate looks. They're presenting themselves in ways they should not be presenting themselves. And they should have mothers and fathers who have the guts to stand and tell them, no, you can't dress that way. We have to help them with this. But how can mothers and fathers help them with this if we're asleep or we're trying to look the same way as older women? I mean, you just look at what the young girls wear to proms and homecoming dances now. And it's all sanctioned by the parents. The parents are taking all the photos. You see, and to see this even more clearly, then let's look at point three. The Proverbs 7 woman's foolishness. This woman is the perfect example of the woman of folly. Now again, let me set this in its context. Verses 1 to 5 begin with warning for a young man, urging him to positively, in this positive realm, urging him to seek wisdom. And, he, and the reason is because wisdom will be your protection. And especially, wisdom will, will protect you from the immoral woman. It's interesting. 
Again, remember, as we learned last week, that the book of Proverbs, in the book of Proverbs, God personifies both wisdom and foolishness as women. Verse 1 of Proverbs 7, my son, keep my words and treasure my commandments within you. Keep my commandments and live. I mean, here it is again, the plea to live. You follow after wisdom and you will live. And my teaching is the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. And call understanding your intimate friend. That they may keep you from an adulteress, from the foreigner who flatters with her words. Do you see once again how wisdom describes an immoral woman? She flatters with her words. She uses her words to tempt and entice. To seduce. That's what she does. And then you see it in full, in full blown color in verse six. For at the window of my house, I looked through, out through my lattice and I saw among the naive and discerned among the youth a young man lacking sense. Remember the woman of folly in Proverbs 9? She's calling out to the naive. Whoever's naive, let him turn in here. Stolen water is sweet. Bread eaten in secret is great. But here's, that's what she's doing. She's looking for naive people. Actively looking for young men, men who lack judgment. Verse 8, passing through the street near her corner and he takes the way to her house in the twilight, in the evening, in the middle of the night and in the darkness. And behold, a woman comes to meet him, dressed as a harlot and cunning of heart. She's boisterous. Remember that from last week? The woman of folly, she's boisterous and she's rebellious. Her feet do not remain at home. She is now in the streets, now in the squares. She lurks by every corner. So she seizes him and kisses him. And with a brazen face, she says to him. Now, remember, in this particular passage, it's not talking about a a, a literal prostitute. We're talking about a woman who acts like one, who looks, dresses, and behaves that way. And the scripture tells us it's in the darkness Solomon says this in four different ways. He uses the word twilight. He uses the word evening. He uses the word middle of the night. He uses the word um, in the darkness. And that's when sexual sin usually happens. It usually happens at night. I mean, you, look, you see the New Testament is like they do all their carousing at night. It's like people think that the cover of darkness covers their sin. She comes to meet him. So what we're seeing here in this passage is that she is the aggressor. And so therefore we have to think about our teenagers. You know, we have to be helping our young girls not to be the aggressors. You know, do you let your daughters chase the boys? Put themselves out there? Now in this passage, take notice of this woman's clothes. Dressed as a harlot, just like what Tamar did, and cunning of heart. So what we're seeing is that, that um, how she's dressing re- is revealing her heart, dressed as a harlot, and cunning of heart. I mean, these phrases are together for a reason. What she is on the inside shows itself on the outside. And that should be, again, lessons for us, things we can learn from this passage, our facial expressions, our words, our clothing, our behavior. They all reflect what's going on inside. And how does a harlot dress? In suggestive, seductive clothing. It's one of her traps for the boys. I mean, y'all, we don't get dressed by accident. And we don't lay in bed and say, the clothes just like walk out of our closets and get dressed, get on us. We actually choose what we're going to wear. 
We actually pull it out and put it on and look in the mirror. And of course, if our hearts are filled with sensuality and we're taking all our cues from the culture around us, it's going to show up in our clothing. You can ignore it if you want to. But our clothing is one of the ways that reveals what's going on in our hearts. So, ask yourself, why do I wear what I wear? But this woman's problems extend way past her clothing. She's boisterous, loud, aggressive, demanding, opposite of the gentle and quiet spirit that we see in 1 Peter chapter 3. She's rebellious, headstrong, defiant against God's will and God's authority. In fact, all authority. I'm going to do what I want to do, and I don't care what anybody says. No one's going to be the boss of me. You're not going to tell me what to do. I'm going to do what I want to do, and I don't care. Oh, God's word says that? Well, that's not what he meant. What he meant was this. And who are you to be telling me what I should do? Then the next thing is her feet do not remain at home. She's dissatisfied with home. I mean, think about it. This has been what's been going on in our culture for years in terms of women. Telling women that they're supposed to be unhappy. That they're supposed to be unfulfilled if they are a wife, a housewife. In fact, they don't even like that term, housewife. Housewife or a homemaker. No, that's like, that's like you know, I mean, that is scorn today. We're told that we're supposed to be dissatisfied with the jerk that we married. That's the world. I'm not saying that. <laughs> I mean, seriously, well, since when have you heard from our culture in any form? I don't care if it's magazines, if it's social media, if it's television programs, whatever it is, movies. Be grateful for your husband. Why don't you make a list of all the things you love about him and concentrate on those instead of all the things that you don't like about him? Be grateful for your home. Be grateful for your children. I mean, when do we ever read articles that tells a married woman with children that her life is okay? In fact, it's better than okay. It's maybe even good. I'm not talking about godly Christian women who understand the scriptures and are trying to help and encourage the next generation. I'm just talking about our culture at large. I mean, I had a file of all of these, you know, articles from publications like New York Times and the New York. I couldn't find some of them because one of them I wanted to just bring and read the headline. But it's all like just extolling how I lost myself when I had my children and I had to pursue my career. And this is what I did and how I handled it. So if this woman does not remain at home, where is she? What's she doing? She's in the streets. That's what the scripture says. She's in the squares. She's lurking by every corner. I love that word, lurking. She's lurking by every corner. She's up to no good. She's looking for, to get in trouble. She's characterized by constant running around, never home because she's dissatisfied there. So I got to go out and find something to do. And what does this lead to? Well, this is what we see, right? The next verse. She seizes him and kisses him. Being aggressive in relationship with a guy. And with a brazen 
and that means shameless, and with a brazen face she says to him, I was due to offer peace offerings. Today I have paid my vows. So she's a religious woman. We might call her today a church girl, a church woman. She goes to church. I mean, she's probably there every Sunday morning. She's there on Sunday night. She's serving in classes. She's doing all this stuff. Active in ministry stuff. Going to Bible study after Bible study. Running from one conference to another conference. But what's going on in the heart? See, this Proverbs 7 woman is not some made-up woman. She's alive. She's well. She lives here today. And she's not just showing up on the television programs that we as Christians entertain ourselves with, and we shouldn't be doing that. And she's not just showing up on those social media reels acting stupid. She and her sisters could be in this room today. I don't think so, as I look around. But seriously, she's alive and well. They come to our, our evangelical churches. They're 15 years old, maybe 12, 23, 38, 45, 64, 76, 80-something. doesn't matter the age. She shows up in every single age and stage and season of life. She's single, she's married, she's divorced, she's widowed. She's a member of a conservative church even. Verse 15, therefore I have come out to meet you. Because, you know, she's paid her vows, she's been to church. She's done her religious duty. I've come out to meet you, to seek your presence earnestly, and I've found you. I've spread my couch with coverings with colored linens of Egypt. I've sprinkled my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. See what she's doing, y'all? She's saying things to this man that should only be said to her husband. She's speaking sensually, sensuously to this young man. She's indiscreet. She's speaking openly and freely about intimacy that should only be spoken of between a husband and wife. And isn't that just where our culture is again? I mean, it's everywhere. No restraint. Verse 18. Come, let us drink our fill of love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with caresses. Verse 19. For my husband is not at home. He's gone on a long journey. He's taken a bag of money with him. And at the full moon, he will come home. I mean, she's basically saying, we've got this time. We've got this time. And she doesn't even care that she's inviting this stranger into her home that she shares with her husband, that he's provided them together. And then verse 20, with her many persuasions, she entices him. With her flattering lips, she seduces him. So she's using her words to control and to get what she wants. And then this proverb tells us what happens to the men. Verse 22, suddenly he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as one in fetters to the discipline of a fool until an arrow pierces through his liver and as a bird hastens to the snare so he does not know that it will cost him his life. Remember Proverbs 9? 
Now, therefore, my sons, listen to me. Pay attention to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray to her paths. For many are the victims she has cast down, and numerous are all her slain. Her house is the way to Sheol, descending to the chambers of death. That brings us to point four, the women of Judah's wickedness. And y'all, this is from Isaiah 3, and I'm only going to really refer to it quickly because we looked at this in Shelter of Shade when I taught that in the fall. But it's in this chapter that God's describing through the prophet Isaiah what a nation is like under his judgment. And he has some choice words for the women. Moreover, the Lord said, because the daughters of Zion are proud and walk with heads held high and seductive eyes and go along with mincing steps and tinkle the bangles on their feet... Therefore, the Lord will afflict the scalp of the daughters of Zion with scabs, and the Lord will make their foreheads bare. In that day, the Lord will take away the beauty of their anklets, headbands, crescent ornaments, dangling earrings, bracelets, veils, headdresses, ankle chains, sashes, perfume boxes, amulets, finger rings and nose rings, festal robes, outer tunics, cloaks, money purses, hand mirrors, undergarments, turbans, and veils. I mean, and again, we learn it's no accident that Isaiah is talking about all this stuff. Because he's pointing out how vain the women have become. And he's giving this long list of all the ways they doll themselves up. And now let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. And listen to God's instruction here. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. Now, again, I want to put these two verses in their context. Paul's writing to Pastor Timothy in Ephesus, and he's instructing them about how the church should function. And just before these two verses, Paul has instructed the men. So, you know, we're women here. I teach women, so we're looking at what God says to us as women. But he's instructed the men how they should lead in worship and in prayer. And then he turns to the women. And he has specific instructions for them in their dress, in their attitudes, in their role in the church. And he has to say these things because this city of Ephesus was wealthy and it was affluent. And the women were not behaving properly. These women spent a fortune on their hair and their wardrobes, elaborate, expensive hairstyles and showy, gaudy clothing. So some of the women, because of the sensuality in the culture at that time, they were also, I mean, there's the wealth factor and the gaudy factor and the show-off factor, but then there's the sensual factor, dressing sensuously factor, even at church. So Paul's reminding them that God God just wants his women just as he does now, to spend more time on the inner person. And he wants them to know how to present themselves properly. And he wasn't saying that women shouldn't wear nice clothes or accessorize, but he urged balance, propriety, with the emphasis on modesty, restraint, and holy character. Let's read it again. I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works. Adorn just simply means to put it in order, to arrange it, to prepare it, adorn ourselves for worship, adorn ourselves to go where we go, to do what we do. We're to dress in good taste. To be sloppy and careless is to go against the teaching here as well. There's no special spirituality in being plain. So women are to adorn themselves, but with what? And he says, proper clothing. Well, how do you define that? 
Well, some outfits we all know are are just no-brainers as far as I'm concerned. I mean, sometimes we don't know. I mean, we legitimately don't know. But for the most part, we do know. And as we grow in Christ, God's Holy Spirit convicts us. And we realize, because that's his job, he convicts us of sin. And some things that I realize are sin today, I, might, I didn't realize were sin at another point in my life. But as I grow in Christ, God shows me he's always refining. He's always taking the scum out. And he brings more to the surface. I mean, if he dumped it all on me as soon as I became a believer, but God doesn't work that way. He, it's a, it, and that's what, that's what the word sanctification means. We grow in Christ. So proper clothing means more than just the clothes a woman puts on her body, but it carries the meaning of attitudes and actions. You know, I've said over and over how she presents herself, how we present ourselves. Because if I came in here today and I was wearing running shoes, running shorts, T-shirt, you'd say, you must be going running after you teach. Because the way we dress communicates something. If I came in and dare with a, came in with a long, white veil, uh, long white dress and a veil and carrying a bouquet, what's the message I'm sending? Well, you're pretending to get married again because <laughs> I'm communicating something. And we all know the style words, classic, trendy, flirty, sophisticated, soft, demure, professional. So how would others describe how you present yourself when you go to church or you go to Walmart or anywhere? I mean, teenagers, how do you present yourself? How do you decide what you're going to wear? I mean, we're intentional, y'all. I already said this earlier. We're intentional about it. We didn't get dressed by accident. So in this passage, God's saying he wants women to adorn themselves. That's good. He wants us to arrange, to put in order. That's good. God wants us to do it. But he wants us to do it properly. He wants us to do it modestly. But, of course, no one knows what that means anymore. And if they do hear the word, they think, ugh. You know, but uh, it, all it means is decent and orderly. That's all it means. It's related to the Greek word that means cosmetic, where we get the word cosmetic. Decent, orderly, good taste, and do it discreetly. That just means with some restraint, sound judgment. The King James Bible uses the word shamefacedness. Not that a woman is to be ashamed of being a woman and dressing like a woman, but that she would be ashamed if she dressed or acted in a way that did not bring glory to God, that marred her testimony as a believer. You know, and a woman who possesses this quality, she's ashamed to dress or present herself in an unholy way, especially around men. And of course, we all know some men will look at women no matter what they wear because they have a problem. Because the men have a problem. But some will be tempted to look at you in that way. Tempted. Because a godly man says no to his temptations. But he'll be tempted to look at you that way because you have the problem. Or I have the problem. And in this area of proper clothing, some of us have a problem. Some of us have a problem with seductive clothing. Some of us have a problem with masculine clothing. Others have a problem with sloppiness. Others have a problem with gaudiness. I mean, and there's all kinds of things that I didn't even mention. I mean, it's like Isaiah described. Maybe you see the ornaments in the hair or the big dresses. 
and all the jewelry before you actually see the person. Or maybe you see who you thought was a woman, but I mean, what you thought was a man, but it was actually a woman because the way she presents herself is like a guy. Not because she's transgender or trying to be in that, in that realm. But see, in Paul's day, it was a problem in the church. So then he adds specific to it. Specifics, plural. Not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments. Doesn't mean that you can't braid your hair. Doesn't mean you can't wear gold or girls or wear nice clothes because, you know, he would be saying you couldn't, you couldn't even get dressed. What it does mean is just don't let this consume you. And apparently it was consuming the women in Ephesus, just like it consumes so many of us today. In 1 Peter chapter 3, Paul writes the same admonition. It's like the, it's like the sister passage. And let not your adornment be merely external. And the context here is for a wife who's trying to win over her disobedient husband to the word. And he knows her temptation is just try to, to win him over to Christ in, a, in just the way she looks, presents herself physically. But he said, no, don't let your adornment be merely external. Don't let that be all you work on. Like braiding your hair, wearing jewelry, putting on dresses. But he says, let it be the hidden person of the heart. He's saying, that's what you need to emphasize the most. That's what will win your husband over. Because, and then he describes it and says, the imperishable quality of a gentle and a quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. So all women, whether at church or in the world or in the home, have the temptation to work and worry about the outside appearance more than the inside appearance. And that's why we need the constant reminder, y'all. I know I need the constant reminder. So likewise, again, I want women to adorn themselves, but with proper clothing, modestly, discreetly, not with braided hair, gold, or pearls, costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. So a woman's greatest beauty and adornment comes when her, will come when her clothing reflects a heart that is godly, when the way she presents herself reflects a heart that is godly. So she'll not only dress properly, she'll behave properly. Her life will be characterized by good works. That's what God's word says. She will be wise in all areas of her life. Or she will be coming wise in all areas of her life. All this is proper for a woman making a claim to be godly. The women, dominate, the women dominating our culture today... Make no claim to godliness. Their dress reflects this. Their attitudes and actions and the way they present themselves reflects this. But we have to decide, are we going to be wise? Are we going to be like the woman of wisdom? Or are we going to be like the woman of folly? We have to decide. Romans 14 says, So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. It is not good to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. So I want to address this quickly because you've probably already noticed that I haven't spent any time talking about the way men think and how they are visual because I don't even think that for the most part needs to be the focus. Because in this sex-crazed culture of our day, women already know this. I mean, that's what they do, what they do. And it's probably one, I mean, I mean that's just, that's, that's obvious. See, and when we make men the main focus, it, I just think it further tempts women to sin. Because it makes women feel good that they can get the man's attention. 
It makes them, it tempts women to want to show off. And that, again, is just a mark of insecurity. I got to be noticed somehow. And you know, I told you about that Twitter storm earlier in the message. You know, you couldn't even, I, I, I had to, I, I just, I, I mean, you couldn't even see the scoffing because of the images people were putting intentionally on this guy's reply, in this guy's replies, replying to this pastor. And by the way, in marriage with your husband, you know, flirt with him. (laughs) But when women dress and present themselves in such a way to deliberately cause men who are not their husbands to entice them, she's deeply sinning against God. It's a deep sin, y'all. And she's proving herself to be a woman of folly. Our focus should be on who God is and what he has said. That's what we have to teach. This is what God's word says. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 31. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 6 verses 19 to 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. I mean, what does it mean to be bought with a price? I mean, God cares about what we wear, but he cares more about our hearts, just like he did with Adam and Eve, because that's what I emphasized at the beginning of this message. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. Now, let's revisit this for a second. Why did he do this? I mean, these garments of skin were significant. An innocent animal had to die. And so for the first time, Adam and Eve witnessed a sacrifice, the sacrifice of an innocent animal for them, a sacrifice for their sin. God had to show them what death was, that their sin brought death and decay. And so these garments of skin were also significant because this sacrifice represented the sacrifice of Christ who would be born into this world and would die on a cross to make a covering for our sin. A complete covering for our sin. Matthew Henry in his great commentary wrote these words. Thus the first thing that died was a sacrifice. Or Christ in a figure. Who is therefore said to be the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. These sacrifices were divided between God and man in token of reconciliation. The flesh was offered to God. A whole burnt offering. The skins were given to man for clothing. Signifying that Jesus Christ having offered himself to God. A sacrifice of a sweet smelling savior. We are to clothe ourselves with his righteousness as with a garment that the shame of our nakedness may not appear. Adam and Eve made for themselves aprons of fig leaves, a covering too narrow for them to wrap themselves in. Such are all the rags of our own self-righteousness. But God made them coats of skins, large and strong and durable and fit for them. Such is the righteousness of Christ. Therefore, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but I want to put on the Lord Jesus Christ in every area of my life. And I want God to continually show me where I'm off the path. 
And even what we've talked about today, modesty, proper clothing, how we present ourselves, it's not primarily about what we wear or what we don't wear. Because you won't even care about any of this if you don't belong to God. And you could, you could walk away from here just being one who scoffs. And if you scoff at the things that God says in his word, then you alone will bear it. But if our hearts are right with God, and if we are growing, our dress, our outward appearance, the way we present ourselves, our behavior will be growing in these areas. One of the dangers sometimes in even presenting a message like this is that women, sometimes, once their eyes are pried open and they get it, and I pray that we get it, then we become critical and judgmental of others and we point out their sin. Look, it's not your job to go around and point out someone else's sin. I mean, God may call you to have a mentoring relationship and may call you to speak truth into people's lives or even to teach. But I'm talking about that self-righteous going around just picking on people and holding up a standard that you're not even keeping yourself. I mean, Jesus said, you get the log out of your own eye. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, in another place in Luke's gospel, he says, judge righteously, judge with righteous judgment. He says, for in the way that you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the big two-by-four, the log, is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. God calls us to deal with us. And then as we deal with us, then he'll show us the ways we can encourage and help other people. We, get to, we have to get our own heart right with God. And then he will use us in the lives of others. He'll give you a platform his way. In your home with your own daughters. In your church. And in your world. So the question once again becomes, have you trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior? Is he really the one reigning over your heart? Are you clothed with his righteousness? Have you trusted in his death, burial, and resurrection to save you? Do you understand the sacrifice that was made in your behalf? Because if you really understand that, you will be like the psalmist. You will run to the commands of the Lord. And you will say, Lord, show me where I'm off. Help me get back on. Father, I thank you so much for this hour that we've spent talking about your word. Father, I pray that you will use your word as only you can to convict us, but yet encourage us and comfort us. Father, I pray that we would be women of wisdom, that we would forsake our folly and live. And I thank you for the sacrifice that you did in the Garden of Eden. And that you did when you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to come to earth to live a perfect life as the God-man who could take on the sins of the world and who died in our place but didn't stay dead 
rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. And because of this, we can forsake our folly and live in Jesus' name. If you enjoyed this episode of Rare But Real, be sure to subscribe so you'll be notified when a new episode is posted. And share this podcast with friends. Follow Audrey on Instagram and Facebook at Mothering From The Heart. And listen to all her messages on the Search the Scriptures app.